0: Well, this morning we're starting Ecclesiastes, and we're going to spend about 14 weeks studying the book, and I trust that as we go through it, you'll find it a book that's exciting, a book that uh, is contemporary. Uh, I call it the Philippians of the Old Testament. What's the theme of the epistle to the Philippians? Rejoicing, rejoicing, and I think you're going to find that also here for Ecclesiastes as we go through. Now, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, we talk a lot about real life and the issues that are faced in life. This class is going to deal with those issues. We're going to talk about them. We're going to see what the book of Ecclesiastes has to offer with regard to solutions and answers to life's problems and life's difficulties. Uh, So many things we talk about are things that uh, are not really new and especially when it comes to what happens with us in our lives there's really nothing new under the sun and that's one of the statements made by the writer of ecclesiastes uh, this morning the pastor talked about churchill churchill died in 1965 on this very date uh, in 1908 the boy scouts of america began on this very date and I look around today, the Boy Scouts of America is still going on but there are fewer and fewer young people directly involved it seems in uh, the Boy Scouts of America. There'll probably be some new organization start sometime and it'll be like a replacement for it. We never know. Things change. We go on and on. How many of you think that the automobile began in the the 1800's? If you raised your hand on that one or think it was, you're correct. If you thought it was 1900's you were wrong. It was on this date in 1860, that's 150 years ago, that the internal combustion engine was invented by a Frenchman by the name of Etienne Lenoir. And uh, within two years, he built the world's first automobile. And it was able to go six miles in two hours. (laughs) I (laughs) think I got behind him on the way to church. oh and you know the average man at a good pace can walk four miles an hour so (laughs) it was just to have the comfort of having something (laughs) carry (laughs) you. that was with uh, coal gas and air the first time that fire drove a uh, engine that uh, rolled along the ground in 1848 gold was discovered at Sutter's Creek in California and what's going on in California today we had a gold rush in 1848 and today we're having a rush of bankruptcies right home foreclosures uh, all kinds of things going on that uh, show the economy of California is going down and down and our governor says we're billions of dollars in debt as a state and uh, we have companies bailing out of California as fast as they can go somewhere else things change and if we wait long enough or if you survive long enough you might see it go around the other direction because that's the way life is and that's part of the message of the book of Ecclesiastes. Now when we talk about Ecclesiastes, the quote that you have there on the sheet and the quote, quote that we used in little blue flyer inside the bulletin today to announce the class is this one by Havelock Ellis he uh, published this in a book in 1926 And uh, he said in it, set your shoulder joyously to the world's wheel. You may spare yourself some unhappiness if beforehand you slip the book of Ecclesiastes beneath your arm. He spent a lot of time reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of the things he learned from Ecclesiastes was that it dealt with real life. And if you read Ecclesiastes, it will tell you what real life is like. And if you understand its message, you'll not only be aware of what you will face in its challenges and problems and difficulties and frustrations in life, but you'll also find an answer because the solution is provided. Interestingly, the book is considered by the Jewish people a book of celebration. And it is read on the third day of the Feast of Tabernacles in the synagogues around the world In late September or early October as part of that feast day that commemorates the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt and their survival in the desert for 40 years it's a time of an annual harvest festival and it recalls the wilderness experience and how God provided for Israel's needs in the wilderness and he brought them into a land flowing with milk and honey and continued to provide for their needs that is part of the whole tradition in the Jewish community, is the reading of Ecclesiastes that time. We're told in Nehemiah chapter eight verse eight, that the Feast of Tabernacles is a time of great joy. It's a time of great joy because of what God has done. It's a time of great joy because of the community of God's people and they're helping one another. It's a time when the Jewish people give gifts to one another. And that is described in Nehemiah 8 as you go through there. But the greatest joy of all is the obedience to the commands of God. And that's part of the joyfulness of the celebration and of the book of Ecclesiastes. When we talk about the various books of the Old Testament that are wisdom literature, there are three that stand out above all others as wisdom literature. One is the book of Job, one is the book of Proverbs, and one is Ecclesiastes. And Derek Kidner said that it's easy to identify or to associate those three books with the images of three houses. First of all, Job, the fallen house. Because in Job chapter 1, verse 19, you have the wind striking the corners of the house and destroying it with Job's children inside. The fallen house. The book of Proverbs the seven-pillared house of wisdom that is talked about in Proverbs 9.1. A beautiful mansion that Lady Wisdom abides in and inhabits. And then Ecclesiastes, basing it upon the description in chapter 12, verses 3 and 4, the decaying house. And as we get to that, we'll be talking about if that describes the decaying body as we age. That as we age, The eyes grow dim, the ears become dull, and our sleep becomes less. Our knees provide problems for us, right, Glenna? And uh, we become achy and creaky and all those things. It's like an old house that needs maintained. used to be an old song about that, this old house. (laughs) Right. Yeah. <laughs> Marvin says he understands achy and creaky right away <laughs> now as we talk about a comparison between these three books we find out that Proverbs is a book of, uh, that demonstrates a practical path to wisdom Proverbs talks about the things you do in order to demonstrate wisdom or to inculcate wisdom into our pattern of lives and living Ecclesiastes is the reflective path to wisdom. It's the one that you have to think about and think through. Many talk about it as being deeply philosophical and theological in character. Although we'll talk about a little bit more about the theological side, there's some who thought that there was no theological value in Ecclesiastes at all. It's a book for thinkers, and it's a book for theological thinkers. And some of you may say, well, that puts me out. I'll not be here next week then. Uh, Lest you think that that is the way it ought to be, remember that Peter said that we are to gird up the loins of our minds. Every believer is to be a thinker. Every believer in reading the word of God or hearing the word of God is to think about those things, to think deeply, to study them, and to seek to understand them. That is the obligation of every believer. We call ourselves the Bereans. Do you know why we call ourselves the Bereans in here? Acts chapter 17. The Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica because they searched the scriptures to see whether or not the things that the Apostle Paul was preaching about were true. And so this is a class of thinkers. This is a class of Bereans. This is a class of those who are going to check on what I say to make certain that what I say fits the word of God. I hope. I hope you do that. And I hope you do that with everyone. When I was in seminary, I had a professor who shocked the class one day. He stood to his feet and he said, The book of Ecclesiastes is the one book in the Bible that probably shouldn't be there. Then he paused and let it sink in. And as the students began to react and his hands began to shoot in the air, he said, I believe that it has absolutely no theological value. Now it created quite a discussion in class. And he stuck to his guns and would not change. So when I left class that day, I started reading the book of Ecclesiastes. And I started keeping track of everything doctrinal in it. Every teaching about God. And as a result, I came up with that chart that you have that's on page two, which gives a portion of what I studied. I spent two or three weeks on the project, and then I brought it back to class with me and handed it to the professor, and I said, Sir, I respectfully disagree ...that the book of Ecclesiastes has no theological value. Because I see all these things that are taught about God in the book of Ecclesiastes. It it teaches about God's sovereign control over man. God's providential grace. Uh, It talks about his eternality. It talks about his creatorship. It talks about his perfection. It talks about his justice and holiness. It talks about his abode. And more than that, it talks about his omnipresence. He's everywhere and he's all knowing. He is all powerful. He's omnipotent. It says that God preserves his people. And it talks about God requiring reverential fear. And in fact, I've told him I felt that this is one of the themes of the book of Ecclesiastes. And the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes in 12.13 says, Fear God and keep his commandments. And that God requires obedience before sacrifice. Well, that professor became one of my favorites for one reason. He took it. He read it. He came back to class the next week and stood up in class and said that he had changed his mind, that the book of Ecclesiastes definitely had Theological value. So when I graduated from seminary, he had left the year before to start a new seminary in Denver, and uh, he asked me to join him. And we worked as colleagues together. And we began with that kind of give and take relationship between us. And it was a joyous thing. I always enjoyed that with him. Uh, and it taught me that regardless of how far I go in my education, I need to still be learning. His name was Dr. Robert Myrant. Dr. Robert Myron and uh, just uh, he he taught me so much and of course this this book book also talks about God's word it even talks about the fact it's God given it's amazing and that's just the beginning that scratches the surface of the book of Ecclesiastes what other doctrine do you expect the book of Ecclesiastes to touch on as we go through it for those of you who may have read it or be a little bit familiar what do you think will also be in there Okay, the eternality of God versus fertility of life. Why is life futile? What's the ultimate cause of futility in life? Without God. Sin, without God, the results of the fall. Right. So, what doctrine is the Book of Ecclesiastes also going to talk about? The doctrine of man, anthropology, the doctrine of sin, hamartiology. These are things that are going to be talked about in this book. Because this book is not only going to reveal to us who God is, but it's going to show us the stark contrast of fallen, sinful man. So we're going to learn a lot about ourselves in this book. Not just about God, but also about ourselves. Now, if someone says Ecclesiastes, what's the one word that pops into your mind immediately? Vanity. Vanity, vanity. All this vanity, right? Soap bubbles, we're going to talk about that. That's right, it's a good one. Right there. (laughs) When I was teaching in Denver, I had a colleague there, Dr. Fred Brock. And Dr. Brock used to say over and over again, this is the meaning of vanity. It's like a soap bubble. It looks pretty, but it doesn't last long. All right? And so he used to like to read this as soap bubbles, soap bubbles, all is soap bubbles. See, is right. Maybe Dr. Street had Dr. Brock somewhere along the way. He was a wonderful man of God. He was my pastor. He was your pastor? Oh, fantastic. At Petaluma. At Petaluma. Yes. A wonderful, wonderful man of God. A man of prayer. A man very much like our Dr. Cup at the seminary here. Yes. All right. When we talk about this word "vanity," what do we think of? Well, this word is translated many, many ways in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and I've taken two ma- two translations: the NIV and the Revised English Bible. Just as uh, illustrations of the meanings that can be used in translation if you look in your new american standard your king james you'll find vanity you'll find futility you'll find emptiness it's the same word that means worthless idols in deuteronomy 32 21 or just worthless in isaiah 30 verse 7 which another translation niv translates as useless no purpose in isaiah 49 4 and niv says nothing as you get this these words this range of words and meanings for this single Hebrew word you begin to catch a feeling for what the phrase means vanity of vanities all is vanity worthless worthless useless useless no purpose no purpose nothing nothing a puff of air it's translated in Isaiah fifty-seven thirteen: a mere breath a mere breath sham in Jeremiah 10.3. Fleeting in Proverbs 31.30 and the New American Standard also uses the word fleeting in one place where it seems to fit better. Another translation is an enigma. An enigma, an enigma, all is an enigma. What's an enigma? It's a mystery. It's a puzzle. It's something that's difficult to grasp or to understand. How many of you had something happen this week in your life that you just have not yet been able to understand? We've got a couple of honest people here. (laughs) Or maybe it's just that you just haven't faced that situation yet and you're going to this coming week. (laughs) Too busy with snow up there. I'll tell you, I, I face these things every single week. Situations that I just don't understand, like a few weeks ago when I had the blowout on the freeway. Why, Lord? Why didn't I make that meeting? There's a big plan, things to be done, people to see and meet and things to do and ministry to be involved in and I didn't make it. And you say, why? You know, there's there's those mysteries, those enigmas. There's all those things that come up. And there's issues you run across in your family. There's issues of, of health. You know, when someone suddenly has a lump appear or has a a cancer appear or has to have surgery or something of that nature, and you say, why now? Why this? Why at this time? Those are the enigmas of life, and we don't always get the answer. Sometimes we have to wait a long time to find an answer, and sometimes we never learn the answer of why something takes place. That's involved in this word. And it's fascinating to me because in Ecclesiastes, there are two concepts, everything and nothing. And in the Hebrew language, take a look at these two words. How close do they look? They look very close, don't they? In fact, the middle character is the only one that has any difference. And this is what Jesus talked about when he said not one jot or tittle, of the shall pass away before all is fulfilled. The tittle he's talking about is learning the word form. And it's that little horn, that little sticking out ledge on this one letter down here that distinguishes it from this one. That's how quickly everything can turn to nothing. Just knock a little corner off of it and it's gone. This is part of the play on words that takes place in this book that you can't see in the English but is there in the Hebrew when you see this type of situation. This is the word for everything. This is the word that is translated vanity, <clears throat> vanity, nothing, a breath, a wind, useless, purposeless, an enigma. When we talk about human vanities, the vanities in our lives, How does the book describe these? Well, first of all, it calls wisdom vanity. Effort vanity. Achievement vanity. Life vanity. Rivalry vanity. Self-sacrifice vanity. Power is vanity. Greed. Accumulation. Religion. Those are the things that this book says are vanity, that gives then the final ultimate qualification of being futile, of being like chasing the wind. Now, some of these should cause you to perk up and say, Why? Why in the world does he say wisdom is useless? Doesn't it say the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God? So, how does he say wisdom is useless? Isn't Christ the embodiment of wisdom? Isn't wisdom a good thing? Why does he talk about it being empty and vain? What about life itself? Isn't life a gift of God? What about self-sacrifice? Or this is selfish sacrifice, not not selfless, it's selfish. This is what we learned in the the, uh, sermon this morning from the pastor. Is there's a contrast between selfish sacrifice and self-sacrifice, selfless sacrifice. You can understand this one. Power, we can understand. Greed, we can understand. Accumulation of of goods, we can understand. Religion, well, if we keep it as just religion and not faith, you see. But this is part of the appeal of the book. It pulls us in because now we want to know what is it about wisdom that is vanity and empty. And is he talking about true wisdom or false wisdom? Alright? Does it perk your attention there? Now, we talk about vanity being a key concept or a key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. But it is not the most recurring word in the book. It occurs three times in these clusters. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. And so that mounts up to a number very quickly. But those passages where those occur are not that often. The most often recurring word in the book of Ecclesiastes is the word good, 52 times. Wisdom and wives, 52 times. God, 40 times God is mentioned. And keep in mind, not once in the book of Esther, as God mentioned, but 40 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. Heart, 40 times. Vanity, only 34 times. And that's with these intense clusters. Now, vanity of vanities, all, of, all is vanity, is a key phrase of this book. It is a theme of this book but it really does not dominate the book the way so many people take it. Under the sun is a phrase that occurs 29 times. Live or life 26 times. And rejoice or joy 17 times. So, as we're thinking about keywords that provide key themes in this book, how many of these terms are negative? Vanity is negative. You might consider under the sun negative because it's merely temporary existence, but really, this is the only negative term of the major terms used in the book. And is the only reason why that professor of mine when he said there's no theological value, he thought it was a book, originally he thought it was a book that was merely pessimistic, skeptics. That it was a book of skepticism, doubt, and pessimism rather than a book of joy and rejoicing, of obedience and of the fear of the Lord. The purpose of the book then brings us up to say, okay, what what is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? Turn with me to the last chapter of Ecclesiastes verses 9 through 14 notice how the book closes I find it fascinating in my edition of the New American Standard Update there's a subject heading there and it says purpose of the preacher and this is the purpose of the book in addition to being a wise man the preacher also taught the people knowledge and he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. Isn't that fascinating? That one shepherd is God. Did you ever think that in the book like Ecclesiastes, you'd find a reference to the Lord being the shepherd? Like Psalm 23, or like John chapter 10. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Isn't that right, Joe? (laughs) Joe Suzuki knows. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's the purpose of the book. So as we look at that, then it's to teach wisdom. It's to teach wisdom. It is to teach obedience to God's commandments and to fear God to have reverence for God. That's the purpose of the book. It is to engender, not despair. It's not to water skepticism, doubt, and pessimism. It's not to make us afraid of life and its problems and issues. It's to direct us to God and to cause us to obey him and to enjoy the blessings and reward of that obedience and that approach to life. No matter what we face, No matter what kind of difficulty we find ourselves in, if we do that, we will enjoy the life that God has given. Now, there are similar teachings about fearing God and keeping God's commandments in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Proverbs. And I find that very fascinating because I look at the book of Ecclesiastes as one man's spiritual journey in which he keeps a journal and tells us about how he learned that the practical theology of the book of Deuteronomy applied to his life. And I believe it's the same man that turned around and wrote the book of Proverbs before he even had experienced all this, and then God said to him, now I'm going to show you how to live it. You know, God has a wonderful way of doing that. We study the word, we read it, and then he says, okay, now it's time for you to learn it. And he puts, it, puts us through a trial in life that teaches us more deeply and carefully the things that are in that word. And I think that's what happened with Solomon. Skepticism or pessimism? Let's listen to three men. Gleason Archer used to be professor at Trinity Evangelical Seminary in Deerfield Illinois wrote a number of books a book on uh, an encyclopedia of bible difficulties he wrote a survey of old testament introduction he was a man who was very godly a man who devoted himself to the study of the word a man who on his deathbed because he could no longer read because of poor eyesight would have students come and read the bible to him by the hour And when they would come, they'd usually bring their English Bible with them and begin reading. And he would say, excuse me, didn't you bring your Greek New Testament? Please read to me from the Greek. He was that kind of man. But he was very humble, a man who dedicated himself to service. He wrote this, that Ecclesiastes was written to convince men of the uselessness of any world view which does not rise above the horizon of man himself. In other words, any world view that does not include God is not a valid world view. That's what Gleason Archer said. Stuart Alliant, a Brit, who in the book I'm quoting here, it's it's a Lord worth loving and a life worth living and A Life Worth Living is his title for Ecclesiastes. He says, the book of Ecclesiastes leaves us hungry to know God. I agree with that, because that's really what attracted me to the book of Ecclesiastes, was a study of the doctrine of God in the book of Ecclesiastes. Then Walter Kaiser. Walt Kaiser has been uh, well recognized in Old Testament studies. He's written a tiny little book that we used to use as the study guide in classes in Ecclesiastes that I teach like this one. And when I checked, it's out of print and very few were available. There were six copies of it available through Amazon, all used and with different vendors. And one person had the gall to ask something like $30 for the one little thin paperback. Probably because he recognized the value of it. <laughs> and if you have the opportunity to get hold of that book by Walt Kaiser, I, I think it's, it's well worth having. I think I've got it. I think I put it in the notes here for you. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Total Life, in the Everyman Bible Commentary Series, published by Moody. I'm sorry we, we couldn't get hold of them because if we could have got hold of them, we would have had 100 copies in here this morning, and we would have handed them out for you to use for this class. Instead, I'm just making my notes more detailed, as you'll note there, okay? He said this, Ecclesiastes is about a missionary outreach to the Gentiles. Think about that a minute. It's missionary outreach to the Gentiles. In fact, he says, you might choose not to call Ecclesiastes, but euangelistes, which is the Greek for the gospel or for the gospel preacher, an evangelist. Euangelistus is the evangelist. Ecclesiastes is the preacher. So the evangelist. Watch for this in the book. The one thing we didn't mention is about the doctrine of salvation in the book. What is there about salvation here? What is there about good news here? One of the things of good news is that this book lists at least 12 different gifts of God. You wouldn't think about that, would you? If I asked you, where would you turn in the Bible to find a list of the gifts that God has given you, where would you turn? Anyone? Mm-hmm. Ephesians. Ephesians? How about Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit? All right? We'd turn there, wouldn't we? Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians. We'd start turning into the New Testament primarily. But this is a book about the gifts of God. And it says it over and over again. It says, this is the gift of God. God has given this. This is the gift of God. And what are those gifts? A partial list. He's given us a task, a burden. He's given us something that we must do, a challenge. He has given to us wisdom. He's given knowledge. And he gives joy. Those are three more gifts. He gives the work of gathering and collecting things to whom? To sinners. For what purpose? So that they might give them to the godly. Interesting. When you're talking to an unsaved neighbor, you might say to them, Did you know God gave you a gift? A gift of collecting and gathering, the gift of eternity. God gives eternity in the heart of man. Gift of life. He gave us life. He gave us a life to be lived and to be enjoyed. He gives wealth and possessions. The things we have come from him. He gives honor. He gives us the spirit that we have. This is not the Holy Spirit. This is the spirit that is our life principle inside of us. He is the giver of spirit, the spirit that we have. He breathed into the nostrils of Adam the breath of life, made him a living spirit. God gave that. That's saying similar to what we have here, giving life. Now these are only some of the gifts. See how many others you can find in the book of Ecclesiastes watch for that little word give give gave giving has given gift watch for that there are gifts in the book that may be studied and read about words of wisdom is the final one in chapter 2 verse 11 words of wisdom these words come from god they come from the one shepherd Why is the book of Ecclesiastes in the word of God? Because it was given by God. He is the ultimate author, regardless of who the human author is. The title of the book is interesting. It's from the Greek. Ecclesiastes means a preacher. The one who is preaching, the one who is directing, the one who is calling people to gather them together for worship. The Hebrew title means the same thing. Kohelet is the Hebrew title, that is translated preacher throughout the book, or in some translations, teacher. He is the one who gathers a congregation together. And he gathers them for the purpose of worship and for learning the word of God. That's the title of the book. Some translate as, excuse me, gatherer instead of preacher. What about its place in the Bible? Why? How did it get into our Bibles? Well... First of all, we know that the book was recognized by the Jewish community at least 200 years before Christ. In 190 BC, it is quoted by a man named Ben Sirach who writes one of the apocryphal books. It is not quoted in the New Testament, but it is alluded to, its teachings are alluded to, in two places, once in Romans 8.20 and once in James 4.14. In the Jewish Midrash, the Jewish people believe that Solomon wrote the Song of Songs in his youth, Proverbs in his maturity, and Ecclesiastes in his old age. And as we think about Solomon, you know, there's many things here that in his old age, he, remember, had departed from serving God for a period of time according to uh, the book of Kings in 1 Kings chapter 11. There are four fragments of the book of Ecclesiastes found at Qumran by the Dead Sea that date back to 200 years before Christ, which demonstrate very clearly the book was written before that time. Although there are many commentaries that will say the book of Ecclesiastes was not written, some of them, until close to the time of Christ. One says 100 A.D., Several commentators and theologians believe it was written about 100 BC, but these evidences prove that it was written long before then. Notice its own claim to inspiration. We read it in 12:11. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of scholars are like well-driven nails, given by one shepherd. Given by one shepherd. This book is not just written and composed by the author. It's not a product of his imagination or a product of his own idea, effort, or initiative. The initiative to write this book came from God himself. The content of what he should write in this book came from God himself. It is given by our Shepherd. It is a gift to us. This book is a gift. And it is one of those things that we need to remember. Who wrote it? Well, everyone believed it was written by Solomon until uh, 1644. In 1644, a man by the name of Hugo Grotius was the first to deny Solomon its authorship. All right? Martin Luther said it was by that fellow that quoted it, the man named Jesus ben Sirach, Jesus the son of Sirach. The linguistic evidence in it, many say, proves that it was not written or could not have been written by Solomon. Because they say the language is too late. It's it's got language in it that comes from the first and second centuries prior to Christ. Or it's got a lot of Aramaic in it. Forgetting that Aramaic is one of the oldest languages on earth. Remember Laban, the father-in-law of Jacob? He spoke Aramaic. And his Aramaic words are recorded for us in the book of Genesis in chapter 32. Aramaic is, that was characteristic of of Jacob. He's called the wandering Aramean in Deuteronomy chapter 26. Uh, There's a good deal of Aramaic throughout the Old Testament. A lot of Job has Aramaic in it as well. Aramaic is not a key to the date of the book. It doesn't say that it's more recent rather than older. Look at the internal and contextual evidence. We'll look briefly at that, and then we're going to quit. We'll pick up where we leave off the next time on next Sunday. But there's this internal and contextual evidence. First of all, in chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. How many sons of David were king in Jerusalem? What was his name? Chapter 1, verse 12. He was king over Israel in Jerusalem. How many kings were king in Jerusalem? David was the first, right? Because David brought the capital there. All right? 1 Kings 11.42 talks about Solomon being king over Israel in Jerusalem. All who were over Jerusalem before me. Hmm. Now, if there's only David in Jerusalem, how do we answer this one? And it's interesting. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25, mentions this same concept. 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 25. It says this, The Lord highly exalted Solomon in the sight of all Israel and bestowed on him royal majesty which had not been on any king before him in Israel. How many kings ruled over Israel before Solomon? Two. two. What are their names? Saul, Saul and David. So who else could have been king in Israel? Notice it does not say over Israel here. Well, all who preceded me in Jerusalem, chapter 2, verse 7, who can they be? What about Melchizedek, king of Salem? That's old Jerusalem. Genesis 14, 18. What about Adonizedek? What names? Joshua 10, 1. He ruled in Jerusalem. What about Arauna? 2 Samuel 24, 23. He reigned in Jerusalem. And David reigned in Jerusalem. So there are four kings who reigned in Jerusalem even though Solomon is only the third king to reign over Israel and only the second one to reign over Israel in Jerusalem. But very clearly, this portion of the evidence points to Solomon. In fact, let me tell you this in the final point here this morning, and we'll pick up here and continue on next week. And I'll make certain I have plenty of handouts next week, and I'll bring extra ones of these next week as well in case you didn't get one today. When we look at it very carefully and see what the book says, and we see that so clearly referring to Solomon, those who say that Solomon did not write the book do this. They say, well, obviously, these verses are talking about Solomon and no other king fits these than Solomon, but it has to be that the writer of the book did it as a piece of fiction, making himself Solomon-like and appearing to be Solomon when he really was not. That's the way out of the dilemma, you see. So it's, it's very interesting. As we go further, read these, and we'll demonstrate that it has to be Solomon all the way through and as we look at that and study it it helps us to better understand why this one man spiritual journal journey in this journal is of help to us in understanding how we ought to live our lives for God today that's bound prayer father we thank you and praise you for this time you've given us today to initiate the study of the book of ecclesiastes help us as we continue to move forward and finish the introduction next week and move into chapter 1 and to see the message that is there. Father, help us to read this book. It's given from you for us to read, to understand, to learn from. Help us to see ourselves in it and to remember what we're like, not to forget. But above all, help us to see you in it and to remember our obligations to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great week.